So, as Adam mentioned, we are we're in the book of Numbers. We just, we're in the story, midst of the story of Balaam, who is a rather complicated character. As mentioned last time, the significance of Balaam is actually mentioned three places in the New Testament. Jesus talks about him in the book of Revelation. Peter talks about him in 2 Peter. Jude does as well. There, there are lots of lessons that we can learn from the life of Balaam, in addition to the extraordinary story of the donkey. And as, as Adam mentioned, my take on Balaam's life is he starts off good, goes bad, almost gets killed for it, <coughs> repents, turns good again, and then ends up very bad, which we will look at in, you know, God willing, in, in the, the next lesson here in what happens with the, the Midianite women. So, and Numbers 25. So we're going to hit Numbers 23 and 24 today. So, um, we mentioned before, the Moabite king is very agitated that all these Israelites, this massive Israelite nation is parked on his border. And so he wants Balaam. He calls on Balaam, a famous prophet from far away in Mesopotamia. He calls on Balaam to come put a curse on these people, and Angel Lord encounters Balaam on the on the way and reaffirms the idea in Balaam's mind under penalty of death. Says only the word which I speak to you, this you must be careful to speak. So that's the that's the, the parting challenge of the Angel Lord. So Balaam Balaam has that in his mind. He continues on his way. And what we're going to cover today is four prophecies of Balaam. The interesting ones to me are the third and fourth ones. So read through the first two, make a few comments on that, and then I want to dive into the third and fourth prophecies, which are fascinating and actually reveal some interesting things about Jesus as understood by a number of early Christian writers. So let's just start off Balaam's first prophecy in Numbers 22 starting in verse 36. We're going to pick up right where we left off last time. Numbers numbers 22, verse 36. I'm going to read a long passage all the way through the first prophecy. Now when Balak heard Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the border of Arnon, the boundaries of his territory. And Balak said to Balaam, Did I not earnestly send to summon you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam then said to Balak, Look, I did come to you. Shall I now be able to say anything? Whatever the word God may put into my mouth, this I must speak. So Balaam went with Balak, and they came to the unwalled encampments. Then Balak sacrificed sheep and young bulls. He sent some to Balaam and to the rulers with him. When morning came, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the pillar of Baal and showed him part of the people from there. Now Balaam said to Balak, build seven altars for me here. And prepare for me seven young bulls and seven rams. So Balak did just as Balaam had spoken. He offered a young bull and a young and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, Stand alongside your sacrifice, and I will go. Perhaps God will reveal himself to me in a meeting, and I will tell you whatever word he shows me. So Balak stood alongside his sacrifices, and Balaam went on a direct road to inquire of God. Thus God revealed himself to Balaam, and Balaam said to him, I prepared seven altars and offer on each altar a young bull and a ram. Then God put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. So he returned to him, and there he was standing alongside the burnt offerings, he and all the rulers of Moab with him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him and he took up his parable and said Balak the king of Moab summoned me from Mesopotamia from the mountains of the east saying come curse Jacob for me and come call down a curse upon Israel how shall I curse whom the Lord did not curse 
Or how shall I call down a curse upon whom did not, God did not curse? For from the top of the mountains I see him, and from the hills I envision him. Behold, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can examine accurately the seed of Jacob and number the tribes of Israel? May my soul die with the souls of the righteous, and may my seed be as their seed. But Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I summoned you to curse my enemies. And look, you blessed them bountifully. Then Balaam said to Balak, Should I not be careful to speak whatever God may put, put into my mouth? So, so this is a kind of an amusing story here. So Balaam finally arrives and they offer the, the sacrifices. He goes off and consults with the Lord. And the Lord puts the Spirit of God. This is the Holy, Holy Spirit comes upon him and tells him what to say. So he's, he's, he's uttering a prophecy inspired by the Holy Spirit here. And Balak is not pleased with, because instead of cursing the Israelites, he blesses them. And, and his defense is, I, I, can't only, I can only say what the Lord God tells me to put in my mouth. So... Uh, the king, the Moabite king, Balak, decides he's going to give he's going to give Balaam a second chance to see if he does better the next round. All right, and it doesn't it goes it gets even worse after that. So, let's continue the story starting verse thirteen. So Balak said to him, "Yet come with me to another place from which vantage points points you may see, not see him. You will see only a part, but not all of him. Then curse him for me from there." Then he took him to a lookout point over the land upon the summit of a hewn rock and built seven altars there. He offered a young bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam then said to Balak, Stand alongside your sacrifice while I go and inquire of God. Then God met Balaam, put a word in his mouth, and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. So he returned to him. And there he was, standing alongside his whole burnt offering, and all the rulers of Moab were with him. <coughs> Balak then said to him, what did the Lord say? Then he took up his parable and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Give ear as a witness, son of Zippor. God is not like a man to be deceived, nor like a son of man to be threatened. Would he, having spoken, not act? Or shall he speak and not stand by it? Behold, I received to bless, and I shall bless and not reverse it. There shall be no trouble in Jacob, nor shall distress be seen in Israel. For the Lord his God is with him, and the glorious acts of rulers are in him. God brings them out of Egypt like the glory of the unicorn for him. For there is no portent in Jacob, nor any divination in Israel. In due time it will be told to Jacob, and Israel, what God will accomplish. Behold, a people like a lion's cub will rise up and will exalt like a lion. It shall not lie down until it eats the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Then Balak said to Balaam, Neither curse him who curses me, nor actually bless him. So Balaam answered and said to Balak, Did I not tell you, saying, The word... God may speak that I shall do. So here he goes. He he blesses him even. He blesses the Israelites even more abundantly than the first time. And it, look at the wording. He says, "There shall be no trouble in Jacob, and no distress in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the glorious acts of rulers are in him. God brings them out of Egypt. So he's blessing them even more abundantly than he did the first time. And Balak said, "Look." At least don't make things worse for me. If you're not going to curse them, at least please don't bless them. And he says, again, he says, look, I can only say what the Lord has told me to say. So he's defending himself. I'm just, I'm just speaking what God has to say. I'm sorry you don't like it, but I can't do anything other than that. So that's, that's a, a good, good, good admonition for anyone speaking the word of God is just, hey, this is what God says. And I'm just, I'm just transmitting what he's told me to say here. Uh, so. A little, you may have one word here. I'm reading from Orthodox Study Bible, which is based on the, the Septuagint. And there may be one word in there that uh, that threw you for a loop, all right? And uh, it's the word unicorn. 
right? <laughs> Anybody notice that? I see a couple of nods, nodding heads here from the word unicorn. I got into a, as some of you know, Douglas Jacoby, he's a, he's a very well-known in circles we came from. He's a, a well-known Bible teacher, and he's got a newsletter and a, and a, a blog and everything else. A website for, for Bible teaching, very popular. And I remember once he had, he, he puts out little quizzes from time to time. And one of the things was, which of these things is in the Bible and which isn't? And he, one of the things he said was unicorn. He threw that one in there. And, of course, he said, well, of course, that's not in the Bible. That's an imaginary animal. I said, actually, it is in the Bible. It's in my Bible right here. It's in the Septuagint, all right? It's a, the Greek word. It means, means a one-horned animal, basically. It's a unicorn. And uh, so and what, what do you think when you hear the word unicorn, okay? What do you think? Mythical a, a legendary fairy tale, imaginary creature, all right, or a cartoon character, something like that. You think of a little pink pony with a with a with a horn coming out of, of his forehead, something like that. So it's a mythical, imaginary creature. But actually, all the word means is an animal with one horn. That's what all a unicorn means. And uh, you know there are unicorns. You know you know what the, another word for a unicorn is. Rhinoceros. A rhinoceros is a unicorn. Literally, it's a one-horned animal. So it's not an imaginary creature. So you got you to kind of shift your mind here. So it's basically just saying, is the glory of a one-horned animal. So, so uh, And this idea of a horn in scriptures, it shows up a lot of places in the Old Testament and the New Testament prophecies, even in the beginning. I think it's the beginning of Luke's gospel from... Uh, yeah, uh, in, in talking about the 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 uh, the Lord coming as 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 a horn of salvation, there's several places places in the Old Testament, New Testament. I'll put them in the notes. So the, this idea, horn represents a lot of things. You know, horn could be something you're you're sounding a horn. You know, you're blowing the horn. Uh, it would be a horn of an animal in the old days, or you know, Samuel comes with his horn full of oil to anoint the king. But more commonly, the horn represents the strength of the animal. Now, you know, try to imagine yourself, you're in a, you're, you're, you're in, a, uh, in a nation that has sheep and goats and rams and things like this, shepherds. And, you know, with a ram, the horn is the strength and the power of the animal. So I think that's generally, scripture, references scripture to horn, that's what it's talking about. So this is the, it speaks in several prophecies about, uh, the horn of salvation and the horn of the horn of, of God's strength. So, just a little little side comment here. <coughs> Another thing I want to point out in in the first two prophecies that we've read here, and this will become more significant as we look at the third and fourth prophecies, is the nation of Israel. It's a lot of people, and sometimes he refers to the nation of Israel as they, plural, many people. But sometimes he refers to the nation of Israel as he, as if it's one person, all right? Be all the descendants of, of Jacob or Israel, but sometimes he refers to them as he. So it can be a little confusing because he, he switches back and forth using both terms. But this will become more significant as we move forward into the third and fourth prophecy. So third and fourth prophecies, to me, this is the interesting part of the lesson here. Uh, there's several early Christian writers who saw in the third and fourth prophecy here some rather fascinating foreshadowings and prophecies about Jesus. Now keep in mind, this is given about 1,400 years before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. This is in the Jewish scriptures. And beyond that, it's by a pagan prophet. He's not even a Jew. Balaam. So, and actually, Eusebius... Eusebius is known as a famous church historian, but he's actually a pretty good apologist, too. And he wrote a work called The Proof of the Gospel. We have ten volumes of that, you know, ten books of it. They're, they're, they're short, very short books. We have ten books of that. And book number three is one of the greatest apologetic works I have ever read, and I've drawn heavily from that. But, but there's some gems in, in the rest of it, too. And, and in book nine, in book 9, he starts off at the beginning of book 9 and says, you know, I've explained a lot of prophecies about Jesus, but I want to focus specifically on a few prophecies about the incarnation, birth, and infancy of Jesus. 
And so you're probably thinking, oh, he's probably going to be talking about the prophecy in Isaiah about the virgin birth or something like that. No, he starts with one of the next two prophecies in Numbers. So I'm going to put you to the test here. When we read the third and fourth prophecy, and I'm going to, I want to ask you a few questions as we're reading through this. I'll put you to the test here. So, question number one. Is there anything in these prophecies that makes you think about the birth and infancy of Jesus, which all of which is covered in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and Luke chapter 1 and 2, but the infancy accounts. Anything in the story which makes you think of that, that's the first question. The second question, are there any lines or verses in this prophecy that makes you think about other aspects of the life, uh, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ? And I will give you a little hint here. Think resurrection. Okay, think, think about the resurrection, resurrection from the dead. And then the third one, are there any lines or phrases in these prophecies that remind you of another prophecy that has already appeared in the writings of Moses? Very, very similar prophecy. And I'll give you a hint, it's either in Genesis or Exodus, okay? So that's, that's narrowing it down just a little bit there. So, so think about those three things as we're reading through this. So this is, this is putting, putting your imagination creativity test. I want to share something else with you. You know, I'm always asking myself the who cares, why does it make any difference question. Whenever I'm studying the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, I think it's a good question to ask ourselves and then, you know, dig in to find out what is the answer. Everything was written in the past, written to teach us, as it says in, in the New Testament. Um, Allison asked me what I thought was a really good question this week. And maybe this is one that's occurred to you at some point in time. And she said, you know, we live in a culture where we're going in a completely different direction than most everybody around us. It's not, not just that we're different, but we're going in completely different directions, okay? She said, how can I best explain to someone who doesn't believe why we believe these things, especially in the midst of a culture that's going in a different direction? How, how can I communicate to people who don't believe? She says, I, now, I believe these things, but how can I reach somebody who doesn't think the way that we do? <clears throat> and some, some related questions. You know, what anchors me spiritually that other people in the world don't see? How can I express this without just resorting to some personal subjective statement based on my feelings or my experiences or what makes sense to me? How can I communicate in a more objective way that's not just based on me and what I think and what I feel and how I was raised? Okay. How can I challenge the whole belief system of other people without coming across as narrow-minded, arrogant, and judgmental? How do I do that? And how can I do that clearly and simply? What's the best approach to take? So Allison threw this question in my lap, and I said, well, I'll tell you how I would answer that question. Everybody maybe answer it a little differently. I said, that's a great question. Here's how I would approach it. My response is, first of all, what I believe to be the truth about Jesus has nothing whatsoever to do with me. Okay? Nothing. It has nothing to do with me, what I think, or how I feel. That it's nothing to do with my own experiences. All the things that my faith is based on existed long before I was born. Okay? So it has nothing to do with me. There's nothing subjective. Number one. Number two, the foundation of the Christian faith is the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead on the third day. Not because I said so, but because Jesus said so. After Jesus clears the temple in John chapter 2, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us to do these things? John, this is John 2, 18 to 22. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You'll raise it in three days? 
But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. That's what Jesus said in the beginning. This is the sign of my authority, is my resurrection from the dead on the third day. That's according to Jesus himself. That's the foundation of the faith and the definitive sign of his authority. Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's turn there. Starting verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which also you were saved if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That means in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And and he was seen by Cephas and by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain at the present. Some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James and by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. And then let's skip down to verse 14. Paul lays it it all on the line. He said, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. Your faith also is empty. Yes, and we are found to be false witnesses of God because we've testified of God. He raised up Christ whom he didn't raise up if, in fact, the dead don't rise. If the dead don't rise, Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we have all men the most pitiable. So obviously he's using the word sleep here as a metaphor for death in, in two places, which is, which is common in the scriptures. That will tie into something we're going to look at a little later on too. So, this is why the prophecies matter. Because he said Christ died and rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures, in fulfillment of the prophecies. I ask most Christians, where is the prophecy prophecy about the the death of Jesus? And they'll say, well, uh, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. And I say, all right, now give me a prophecy where he's going to raise from the dead. And and most people, it's kind of a, you know, (laughs) blank, blank look. Just got kind of zoned out, deer in the headlights. Uh, well, we're going to hit one of those today in the prophecy of Balaam that was seen by the early Christians, a prophecy about the resurrection. So let's, let's read Numbers chapter 23. Let's continue in the story. And this is going to be a long passage. I want to read both prophecies, uh, most of the second prophecy and all the first, I'm sorry, all... all most of the fourth prophecy and, and all of the third prophecy. So I'm going to read this and think about those, those questions that I asked earlier. Anything about the birth of Christ? Anything remind you of another prophecy in Moses that was given before this? And anything about any other aspect of Christ, like the resurrection? Numbers 23 and verse 27. Then Balak said to Balaam, Come, I'll take you along to another place, if it will please God to curse him for me from there. So Balak took Balaam along the top of Peor, which extends into the desert. Then Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me here. Prepare for me seven young bulls and seven rams. So Balak did as Balaam told him, and he offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Chapter 24. Now when Balaam saw it was good before the Lord to bless Israel... He did not go, as he was accustomed to do, to seek and find omens, but he turned and set his face toward the desert. Then Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel encamped according to their tribes. The Spirit of God came upon him. Then he took up this parable and said, Balaam, the son of Beor, declares, the man who truly sees, declares, the one who hears the sayings of God, declares, the one who saw the vision of God in a dream, a revelation seen by him. How beautiful are your dwellings, O Jacob, your tents, O Israel, like wooded valleys offering shade, like gardens by the river 
like tents the Lord pitched, like cedars beside the waters. Okay, now we, now we shift into deeper waters. A man shall come forth from his seed, and he shall rule many nations. His kingdom shall be more exalted than Gog. His kingdom shall increase. God led him out of Egypt. And he has the glorious appearance of a unicorn. He shall consume the nations of his enemies and deprive them of their strength. He shall shoot the enemy with his missiles. He lies down and rests as a lion, like a lion's cub who shall rouse him. Those who bless you are blessed, and those who curse you are cursed. Now you may have noticed one word that, that seems a little out of place there. It says, is it going to shoot you with missiles? You're thinking, wait a minute, this is 1,400 years. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is over 1,000 years before the birth of Christ. What are they talking about? Missiles. Well, a, a missile, if you're in war, if you're holding on to something, if it's, a, if it's a spear or if it's a sword, that's a hand weapon. And if you hurl it away from you, that's a missile. So it could be a stone. It could be an arrow that you shoot. So any, any weapon that leaves your body and goes after the enemy is a missile. So in other places, in, in Exodus 19, the same, the same passage in, in the Septuagint, it's translated shoot arrows. So basically that's what it's referring to. All right. So you may have noticed a few things in there. Let's continue. A few things like, you know, a man coming forth from Jacob, from the seed of, of Jacob, who will rule many nations. How many Jews can you think of who have, who have been raised up to rule many nations and defeat all their enemies? Okay, verse 10. Then Balak was angry with Balaam, and he struck his hands together, and Balak said to Balaam, I summon you to curse my enemy. And look, you actually blessed him a third time. Now, therefore, flee to your place. I said I'd honor you, but in fact, the Lord deprived you of glory. So Balaam said to Balak, Did I not also tell your messengers whom you sent me, saying, If Balak were to give me his house full of silver or gold, I would not go beyond the Lord's word to do good or evil of my own will? Whatever the Lord may say, this I shall speak. So now, indeed, I'm going to my place. Come, I will counsel you as to what this people will do to your people in the latter days. So this is the fourth prophecy. Pay attention to the words. Verse 15, so he took up this parable and said, Balaam, the son of Beor, declares, the man who truly sees declares, the one who hears the sayings of God declares, the one who knows the knowledge of the Most High, who saw the vision of God in a dream, a revelation seen by him. I will show him, but not now. I bless him, but he's not near. A star shall rise out of Jacob, and a man shall rise out of Israel. He shall break in pieces the rulers of Moab and plunder all the sons of Seth. Edom shall be his inheritance. Also, his enemy shall be his inheritance. But Israel acts with strength. He shall rise up out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. And then he goes on to speak about Amalek and, and, and Og. And then the, the, the descendants of them. And then uh, in verse 20, uh, verse 25 it concludes, So Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place. Balak also went to his own place. Now, so let me go back to my first question. Is there anything that makes you think about anything associated with the birth of Christ? Well, a few things here we might think about in connection with Christ mentioned before it speaks of one who would come from the seed of Israel and, and rule many nations think about Jesus and, and the kingdom about that in the fourth prophecy it says here in the Septuagint version I'm reading from it says a star shall arise in verse 17 a star shall arise out of Jacob and a man shall rise out of Israel okay so Eusebius starts off when he's talking about the birth of Christ. The first thing he mentions in, 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 in uh, chapter 1 of book 9 is this prophecy. Now, I want to I explain something before we read what Eusebius wrote. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. 
He pointed something out to me that I never thought of before in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of heaven for illumination divide day from night. Let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. Let them be for illumination the firmament of heaven and give light on the earth. So talking about God creating the stars. And he says, let them be for signs and seasons. This is the first place that this word signs shows up in the scriptures. Let me give you some other examples where this word signs shows up, the same exact Greek word in the Septuagint. Exodus 12, 13. The blood over the door of the Passover lamb will be a sign. Numbers 21. We read this a few weeks back. It says, you will put the bronze serpent on a sign. All right, which Jesus in John chapter 3 says that this is foreshadowing how he'd be lifted up on the cross. Matthew chapter 12. Jesus says, when the wicked adulteration generation asks for a sign, it says the only sign given to it will be the sign of the prophet Jonah that the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth as Jonah was in the whale. That's the sign, same word. And also, the passage we read earlier in John 2.18, when the Jews asked Jesus, they said, hey, what is, what, show us a sign that you have the authority to clear out the temple. And he said, destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. That's the sign. Okay. Do you see a connection with this word sign here? So Eusebius points out, God said he put the stars up in the sky for seasons and for signs. Same word. Okay, now let's think about the wise men from the east come to to Judea seeking for the one who has been born, king of the Jews. Why do they come? Why do they come? Because they saw a star that to them was a signal that something was going to happen. Okay. Balaam had prophesied that a star would come and then a man, a man would come. It's two different things. All right. So Eusebius starts there in his explanation about the birth of Christ. He said, let's begin as the proof about his birth, tribe, and family is complete by considering the star which appeared at his birth, which was new and a stranger among the usual lights in heaven. For this too was proclaimed by Moses long before in times far distant in the following words. Of course, he's going back to the book of Numbers here. Of these things that happened at the Incarnation, and the star that appeared in our Savior's birth. Moses, in the book of Numbers, says of the star that appeared from the birth of the Savior as follows, and then he quotes from this passage about the fourth prophecy, about the star that would arise and the man who would rise up. And he continues, he said, We're told that Balaam's successors moved by this, for the prediction was preserved most likely among them, When they noticed in the heavens a strange star besides the usual ones, fixed above the head, so to say, and vertically above Judea, hastened to arrive in Palestine to inquire about the king, announced by the star's appearance. Matthew the evangelist witnesses it as follows. And he quotes from Matthew chapter 2. And when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and come to worship him. And when they had, had, had been sent out on their way, they reached Bethlehem. And behold, again, the same star which they saw before in the east went before them until it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him, Matthew 2, verses 9 to 11. <clears throat> so Eusebius continues, this is the account of the Holy, in the Holy Gospel, but, but the word of the prophecies says that striking events will be heralded 
by the rising of the star and the birth of our Savior Jesus. And he continues a little further on. He says, let us now learn the reason why the star appeared. Now Moses says that all the stars were set in the firmament by God for signs and seasons. Genesis 1, 14 and 15. But this was a strange and unusual star, not one of the many known stars, but being a new and fresh by its appearance here portended a new luminary that should shine on all the universe, the Christ of God, a great and new star whose likeness the star had appeared to the wise men symbolically showed. For since in all the holy and inspired scriptures the leading object of the meaning is to give mystic and divine instruction while preserving as well the obvious meaning in its own sphere of historical facts, so the prediction before us was properly and literally fulfilled in the manner of the star that was prophesied to appear at the Savior's birth. <clears throat> he continues, says, And the prophecy foretells a man as well as a star, for it says a star shall rise out of Jacob and a man shall spring from Israel, naming first the heavenly light, the word of God, and next the humanity. And he is called, as I have shown in my former books and other places, by varying names, the rising light, the son of righteousness. And here by applying the verb from rising, as a star shall rise out of Jacob, it shows a diviner aspect as giving light to every man that comes into the world. While it shows the humanity by the suffering that comes to him, where it foretells he will fall to rise again. Uh, and, the, and, and, and the words of Isaiah says, and there shall be a root of Jesse and shall rise to rule the Gentiles and him the Gentiles shall trust. So he continues on from there. Now Eusebius makes the claim here. It may sound kind of a stretch to us. He says that the Magi were the successors to Balaam. All right, now this is 1,400 years before. After... The, the, the class last week, I got, a, I got an email from somebody who was listening in from, uh, from a distance here. And this was uh, Mark Felcher, a friend of mine who's down in North Carolina. And he said, you know, there's, there's actual archaeological evidence in the Middle East for the existence of Balaam. And there's a, an inscription, and I put this in the notes last week, repeat them this week as well. In 1967, the... Uh, the Deir Allah Balaam inscription was discovered in Jordan. And this was dated 700 years approximately after the time of Balaam the prophet. So this would be 600 to 800 B.C. And it speaks of Balaam the son of Beor, a pagan prophet or seer in the ancient Middle East who prophesied doom to his own people. So this is here, here speaking about the same Balaam. Uh, in, this, in, the, in that region of the world, in the east, 700 years after, after the time of Balaam. So Balaam was obviously in the ancient world a rather big deal, and his, his fame had spread over time and over distance as well. So uh, it does seem reasonable to me what Eusebius says, that Balaam was well known, that his writings were preserved outside the scriptures, as well as in the book of Numbers in the writing of Moses. He was a famous prophet whose writings were recorded, and so uh, Eusebius may well be right that the Magi got this from, uh, from a, a prophecy that Balaam had given. Origen, early Christian writer, I'll put this in the notes as well, um, says the same thing. He's writing a little earlier, 248 A.D., and I'll just give a short quote from him. He says, with respect to the appearance of a star at the birth of Jesus, there's a prophecy of Balaam recorded by Moses to the effect, you shall rise a star out of Jacob, a man shall rise up out of Israel. And now if it shall be deemed necessary to examine the narrative about the Magi, the appearance of the star at the birth of Jesus, and the following is what we have to say. And he goes on from there. I'll put the reference in the notes. That's from uh, Anicene Fathers, Volume 4, pages 422 and 423, where he talks about that. So, this, so there we have the reference to the star that would come before the man would come. Another, another comment in here, another phrase you might have, have noticed was it says, God led him out of Egypt. Does that make you think of anything in the New Testament? Okay. In, uh, 
Let's turn to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13. It's right after the account of the Magi. Now, when they departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. An, an, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there till I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. And most of your Bibles here will have a footnote that says that that points back to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And in the uh, actually... Eusebius mentions both the numbers prophecy and the one from Hosea. He says, you know, literally that's, that, that sounds like a quote from Hosea 11.1. 1. However, he mentions the, the prophecy in Numbers first, that uh, God led him out of Egypt. In <clears throat> um, Exodus 4, you know, Exodus 3 is the account of the burning bush. Exodus 4, God tells Moses to... Go and speak to Pharaoh. And think about what Moses is told to say to Pharaoh. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, God says to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Okay? Israel is my firstborn son. The passage in Numbers, it says... um, uh, God led him, Israel, out of Egypt. Put the two together. God led his firstborn son out of Egypt. Okay? So, God says, Israel's my firstborn son. Tell Pharaoh, if he doesn't let my firstborn son go, I'm going to take his firstborn son and the firstborn of all his people. Okay? So, this whole idea of Coming out of Egypt. This is a theme in, in Hosea 11. I always thought this was kind of a one-off random line that, that was pulled out of nowhere. But actually, in Hosea, Hosea is famous for, in the beginning of Hosea, there's a story where Israel is unfaithful and Israel is likened to an adulterous wife who goes and runs off and becomes a prostitute. She's been redeemed and she... She runs away for her husband and gives herself into prostitution. She says, that's what you're like. You're like that. So that's the, the, the picture that is given to the unfaithful uh, Israel. And he says, you know, come back. He wants them to come back to him and stop being unfaithful. The picture he gives later in the book, which is not nearly as well known, is God is referring to them several places in the later part of, of Hosea he says, you're going back to Egypt. That's what you're doing. Okay? He's speaking figuratively. Not that they're physically going back to Egypt, but it, what was Egypt? Egypt was the land that they were redeemed from. It was a land of darkness, of slavery, of idolatry, of bondage. In the story of the, of the Exodus journey, you know, that's where they have to escape from the dark kingdom and they have to pass through the water, which Paul says represents baptism. So this is before they're baptized. It's the old life. It's the old world. It's the world they've escaped from. The picture, God, God, God burns this into people's minds. He says, don't go back to Egypt. When the people are longing, they're looking back to the old life, and they're saying, wow, you know, that food that we had in Egypt, we're sick of this man, and that food we had in Egypt is so good. They're just... They're just while they're craving the fleshly desires that they had back in Egypt. And he says, no, don't do that. God's very upset with them when they do that. In Deuteronomy 17, when the instructions are given, it says, okay, in the future when you have a king, there's several things the king needs to do. He says, first of all, he needs to write down the words of this book of Deuteronomy and meditate on them every day so he doesn't become arrogant and think he's better than everybody else. Okay, To produce humility in your leader. He says he needs to make sure he doesn't multiply wives for himself. He needs to make sure he doesn't multiply wealth for himself. And this is the, this is the, the textbook, everything Solomon didn't do as a king. 
All right? And the other thing he says, he says, don't go back to Egypt for horses. Don't go back to Egypt because you can't go back there. Okay? This is God, just like when tank, just like you have to get all the yeast out of the house after the Passover is slain because yeast represents sin. He says, don't go back to Egypt because Egypt figuratively represents the old life that you escaped from, the old life of idolatry. Don't go back to worshiping those old gods. So this phrase out of Egypt in the scriptures, there's three levels. There's three levels to it. And a lot of things in the scriptures, you know, we look and see sometimes there are two levels, sometimes there's three levels, all three. First level, the Exodus. The Jews physically came out of Egypt. Egypt represents the old life. The second time, the second level is it's a lesson for all of us. Don't go back to the old life before we became Christians. And then the third level is Egypt. Israel is my son. God led him out of Egypt. Is that this is, this is a foreshadowing that God's firstborn son had to be led out of Egypt. So this, even the evil of Herod played right into God's plan is that he would call his son out of Egypt. All three levels are there in the story. So that's the, the I will, you know... <laughs> God led him out of Egypt is in Numbers. So this is another testimony of the same prophecy. Uh, and then there's, there's one other thing I want to point out here. There's, there's a lot in this, this passage we could go into. Numbers 24 and verse 9. This is in the third prophecy. Some gems in the third prophecy, you know, he'll rule many nations. His kingdom will be exalted. His kingdom will increase. God led him out of Egypt. Uh, and then in verse 9, he lies down and rests like a lion. And like a lion's cub, who shall rouse him? Does that remind you? of any line in the Old Testament. Okay. <laughs> Genesis 49. Let's turn back there. Much more famous prophecy, but they're, they're both confirming the same thing. Genesis 49. This is on Jacob's deathbed. He gives a blessing to his 12 sons, and the famous one is the blessing on the fourth son, Judah. Genesis 49, 8, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From being a shoot, my son, you've grown up. He bows down and slept as a lion and a cub, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from his loins until Shiloh comes. To him shall be the expectation of the nations. And then it continues on from there. So this line, Judah is a lion's cub. And he bows down and sleeps as a lion. Who shall rouse him? Right. Sleeping is throughout the scriptures. We already, we already hit it once, once already and, and, uh, today. Sleep with, throughout the scriptures is used as a metaphor for death. What kind of a prophecy is it talking about a lion going to sleep and waking up again? Lions do that every single day. There's nothing unusual about that. But it says he's a lion and the cub of a lion. What is the animal a lion associated with? It's associated with royalty. When, when, on the throne of Solomon, he had lions on both sides. That's the animal that represents the king. And the, the cub of the lion sleeps, and the question is, who will wake him up? Okay. So this is if sleep represents death, what does waking up represent? But it's throughout the scriptures. You know, Daniel chapter 12, 
Uh, we, we hit this, or 1 Corinthians 15, with two, two references to sleep as a, uh, used as a metaphor for death, a figure for death. Daniel 12, those who sleep in the dust of the earth, uh, earth shall, shall, uh, shall awake. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 51, 52, we shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed, is obviously referring to death and resurrection. At Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, he says, Lazarus is asleep in John chapter 11. Let's go and wake him up. And the people say, no, if he's sleeping, he's, that's, he's going he's to let him sleep. He'll sleep it off. He'll be, he'll be better if he's sick. And she says, no, he's, he's talking about death. He's using sleep as a metaphor for death. Now, how do we know that these prophecies about the lion, it says the lion in Judah in Genesis 49, which is obviously referring to the same lion, the lion who sleeps and who's going to wake him up in, in Numbers uh, how do we know this refers to Jesus? We know this because what it says in Revelation chapter 5, in verse 5, where Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the lion who sleeps. Who will wake him up? The other Christians saw this as a, as a prophecy about the Son of God who would be a lion's cub, begotten of the Father, the one of royal position who would die and then be raised up from the dead in a figurative form of a prophecy. And think about it. In the book of Revelation, in the beginning of Revelation, there are two animals that, that Jesus is represented by. He's represented by the lamb that was slain indicating the manner of his death, that he would be sacrificed on our behalf as the, as the Passover lamb to redeem us, to save us. But he's also represented as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who would sleep and who would raise him up. The rhetorical question, the answer being, God himself would raise him from the dead. He is the lion, he is the lamb, he is the one who would be who would wake up from the famous sleep. So we'll uh, we'll close there. Amen.